Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. In this episode of Two Bees in a Podcast, we'll be talking with Logan Cutts, who's a fifth-generation beekeeper. He'll be with us talking about being a part of a beekeeping family and what does it mean to be part of such a long generation of beekeepers. Amy and I will follow that with a segment where we discuss commercial beekeeping. A lot of people, when they think commercial beekeeping, they think about honey production, but we'll be discussing the other ways that commercial beekeepers make money. And of course, we'll finish today's podcast with a question and answer segment. For more information about this podcast, check out our website at ufhoneybee.com. Amy, in this segment, we've got something really neat to talk about. Before I lead into the segment, I want to ask you uh, personally, do you have any beekeepers in your family? Do you have any history of beekeeping in your family? I have zero history of beekeeping in my family. My family thinks I'm absolutely insane for being a beekeeper. Really? Yeah. For being a beekeeper? That's the only reason they think you're insane? Well, there are lots of reasons. I had to do that. (laughs) That's fair. That's That's the one that got them? (laughs) Yep. Well, it's funny, you know, my family also, we, I, I kept bees at my grandparents' house because they lived in a rural area in Georgia and um, my parents wouldn't let me keep bees in our backyard. My grandfather was a dairy farmer. And, and nevertheless, when I would keep bees at their property, my grandmother did not like honey. And I was like, well, well grandma, why don't you like honey? And she's like, well, her brother, so that would be my great uncle, apparently kept bees and brought honey in a lot. She just got tired of the smell of it. And so, I forget his name, but they called him crazy something. So I, I think the premise was that that he was crazy for having bees, but also crazy for other reasons. Again, I forget his name, but but can never you imagine, Jamie, if you became a dairy farmer? <laughs> I, well, you know, Amy, I will tell people I I actually wanted That's to so be a good. dairy farmer. And if you think about it, you're you're like super close to paradise because paradise is the land of milk and honey, right? Yeah, I guess you're right. That's true. <laughs> if I was a beekeeping dairy farmer, I'd be awfully close to paradise. Anyway, exactly. The reason I'm asking you this question is because, unlike you and unlike me, a lot of beekeepers come from long beekeeping families, especially a lot of our commercial beekeepers. Their dad did it or their granddad did it. It might have skipped a generation here or there, but you know, there's there's often continuity in commercial beekeeping ranks. And today we're interviewing a Florida beekeeper who's a a multiple generation beekeeper here in Florida. And I know it's going to sound like a Florida specific story if you're a listener from somewhere around the world, but I think you'll appreciate the story because you're, you're going to probably have similar, you can relate to what we're going to talk about. And that individual who we're interviewing today is Mr. Logan Cutts. Logan happens to be an ag and consumer protection inspector for the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. But his father's an apiary inspector in the state, his grandfather was, and so forth. So we'll get into all of that. So Logan, I just want to start off by thanking you for joining us on Two Bees in a Podcast. Well, I want to thank you for the uh, opportunity 
opportunity to to be on here and talk about my family and our experiences and it is a beautiful thing to uh carry on the uh, of my family for sure i think one of the neat things is when we talk about bees we focus so much on the bees but behind all the bees are just beekeepers who have these fantastic stories and um actually a uh, uh colleague of mine, a mentor of mine, Dr. Mike Hood, who once worked at Clemson University, he's retired from there now. He actually wrote a book recently from that perspective. It was a book about beekeeping, but less about bees and more about the beekeepers he met over the years. And Logan, <laughs> you, your family kind of remind me of that, you know, you know, long after I retire, I'll have stories about the cuts. So let's, let's, let's go straight into it, Logan. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do your interaction with bees, et cetera. And then we'll kind of branch off into beekeeping in your family, how many generations, things like that. But just let's first focus on you. Let's introduce you to our audience. Sure. Uh, well, my name's Logan Paul Cutts. Uh, I'm 23. I like long walks on the beach. <laughs> and, um, oh my but goodness. <laughs> for real, I'm a, uh, <laughs> I'm a uh, fifth generational beekeeper. Beach, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> We've been beekeeping since 1889 as a, a final payment of two sewing machines. And uh, when I was younger, I worked with my family apiary, learned the trade from my dad, my uncle, my cousin Ryan, of course, my legendary granddaddy, Lawrence Cuts. I loved working uh, with Ryan back then. And, you know, I'm always there to help when needed or, you know, whenever asked. Whenever I graduated high school, you know, I had plans to run track, but you mentioned working for you as a, a beekeeper for the lab, and I just wanted to continue bees. You know, I, I knew those schools didn't have a, a, either a good one or any apiary education, so, you know, I took you up on that offer, and, uh, you know, working at the lab was one of the best ex decisions I had. You know, I learned so much about the research side. I, you know, only the uh, practical and commercial side before then. That's all I knew. I knew nothing about the, the scientific stuff. And that truly helped me understand a lot of what I was already doing just out of habit, out of, well, that's what we always do kind of thing. It, it gave me like that knowledge of why and like how how it all works and stuff. And I just want to give a shout out to like, you know, the amazing people I met that worked at the lab, my past coworkers, the volunteers, like Susan Harris and Ray. And, uh, they were just, all you guys were such a huge blessing. You know, Dr. Ellis, you giving me the opportunity was, was just awesome. And after I worked at UF, I went to Australia and I broke and audited uh, bees for almond groves with the Munson family. And then I became a commercial beekeeper and a shepherd with the Kershaws. So uh, if you guys are listening over there in Aussie, you know, you guys were a major blessing to me too and taught me a lot of things. And then I finally came back to Florida. I worked for Wendy Latner at Santa Fe, Queens. And, you know, Wendy and Ray reinstalled a lot of things that my family taught me and also taught me a, a different way of doing things, you know, because beekeepers are cre creatures of habit. So, like, whatever dad did, whatever granddaddy did, and so on and so forth, that's what everybody else does because, you know, that's how they did it. And I uh, just learning a new way of doing the same thing was awesome. And it, it, it helped me morph into like my own style of learning from all these different beekeepers. And now I currently on the side help beekeepers as a private consultant, whether it be small scale or sideline or whatever. I, I just love 
the uh, the teaching aspect and helping people get on their feet and better management styles. That is Logan. I I feel like I knew you and I've worked with you before. I didn't realize you were in Australia. I didn't realize you worked at Santa Fe Queens. I had no idea. So that's that's pretty amazing. It feels like you have so much different experience, um, you know, just with your background and experience with bees in general. So. So you and I worked together through our county here um, in teaching, you know, beginner beekeepers. And I, I always feel like everyone is always just, you know, in awe when you start talking because you have so much experience and you've heard from your, you know, your father, your grandfather. Are you, so are you a fifth generation beekeeper? Yeah, um, yeah. Fifth generation. Okay. And so what, what does it mean to you to be part of a beekeeping family? I mean, Jamie and I, Jamie can relate from the dairy side of things. I don't, you know, come from an ag background, but what is, what does it mean to you? I mean, it, it, it means a lot. It's one, it's a, a thing that you take pride in. And two, it's like really intimidating. Cause you know, as a kid, you know, you were granddaddy shadow, you know, going to different places, meetings or, you know, whatever. And you were meeting all these big shots and hearing topics that, you know, just flew right over your head. And it was like, I didn't know any of that stuff. And it just was like, oh, I'm just going around with granddaddy, you know, meeting new people. And then now I work with these people. I talk with these people and they're like, you were the little redhead that was with Lawrence. And, you know, I was quite literally surrounded, not just by my family, but by all the people that granddaddy would casually talk to. I was literally surrounded by the experts. And, uh, you know, inwardly, I put a, a huge burden on myself to be the best because of like, you know, where I came from. I mean, I came from the Cuts family, but, you know, doc, uh, Dr. Ellis, he, he really helped me and like giving me a, uh, a new avenue to be a successful cuts beekeeper through research. Cause you know, granddaddy, he never put expectations on us to, to be the best, even be a beekeeper. But you know, you put that on yourself, like this is my family's legacy. I want to keep it going. I want to make them proud of me. And it, it, it's a, it's a lot for sure. But, you know, there's nothing I'm more prouder of than my granddaddy being the only beekeeper in the Ag Hall of Fame. My, my dad being a, a apiary inspector like him. My cousin Ryan and Uncle Larry taking over the family business. We got a lot to be proud of. And, you know, though I feel like I've made a good name for myself, like I said, through the avenue of, of learning that scientific side and kind of being that bridge to commercial beekeepers and research and really showing them the importance of both. You know, I, I feel like I'm still dwarfed by my family because there's just so much knowledge and even forgotten knowledge there. And, you know, my granddaddy, dad, aunts and uncles are all humble about it. So I like to be the one to, to brag about it for them. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. So Logan, I, I know your granddad well. You know, when I moved to Florida, he, he welcomed me, Mr. Lawrence Cuts, for, for the listener's sake. And he, he's been a really good ambassador for our beekeeping program. If no matter really where you are in the United States, most people have heard of Lawrence Cuts, most commercial beekeepers, just all the work that he's done on behalf of beekeepers all around the U.S. And one of my favorite. So here, here's the deal, right? In, in my job, I travel the world talking about bees. So I meet beekeepers of all shapes and all sizes and all walks of life and just all kind of backgrounds. And that's always exciting to me. And one of my fondest memories of your granddad is he and I were in it's odd to say it because if, if you know, if, if our listeners don't know your granddad necessarily, but if we were 
but but he and I were in Milan, Italy. There was a small high beetle conference, and we were both there. And we had a free day, and he and I were walking the city. And he and I were, uh, we went to the cathedral there in Milan, and and I remember sitting down and him just telling story after story after story about your grandma. And so that was a really sweet and precious time. I really enjoyed that. And there's just characters like that. That's what brings this kind of human aspect to beekeeping. And of course, your granddad did a lot. Your family did a lot to help us build a bee lab here at the University of Florida. But now, Logan, you know, you being the fifth generation, you, you work for the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. You don't necessarily work directly with bees and beekeeping, but you do um, help monitor the flow of ag products around the state of Florida. So, you know, that means that there will be beekeepers coming through your stations as they you know, move into the state for honey production or for other things. Could you tell us a little bit about what you do in that regard? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, my job is just so cool. I mean, I'm at those ag stations, like you said, checking the ag products that um, are coming through the state. And uh, before I start, I just want to say all these opinions and thoughts are my own personal ones and none of the department. So I just want to clarify that. And, uh, you know, like you said, though, I focus on like produce and plants checking for and non-native species to Florida, you know, we seasonally do get a flow of, of bee loads coming in for a Florida honey flow or overwintering purposes. So whenever they do come through, we, we don't open up the hives and look through them. But, you know, we look for the basic things of a proper bill of laden, uh, where it's coming from, where it's going to, the state of origin, and of course, the, the proper registration that goes along with that. Well, that sounds really great, Logan. Again, I'm super excited that, you know, you're still able to work with ag, whether that be with bees on the side or through your job. And so it seems like, you know, your whole life is really just consumed around that. Um, I'm sure growing up, you've heard lots of stories through your father, your grandfather. And so what do you feel like the big issues, you know, you've seen or have heard of just through yourself and or, you know, through your family? Yeah, so that's a, a really cool thing to talk about, you know listening to granddaddy and all the old beekeepers that he introduces me to listen to the stories about like the tracheal mite, the small hive beetle, you know, all that stuff when it was brand new. Uh, granddaddy always says when you know very little about something and everyone else knows nothing about it, you automatically become the expert on it. And that's how he was with the small hive beetle as soon as it came out. Um, but you know, something that came out, back in the 80s that just totally changed my, my my family's future forever really was the tracheal mite you know whenever it came like i think it was 1985 or 86 uh they had to adapt in uh different ways to overcome not only the struggles that the bees face from the mites but from the economic standpoint like they couldn't they couldn't support their families because of the embargoes or like it costed way too much money they, than they anticipated to treat for the mites. And, you know, my dad says that it looked like they got sprayed, just dead bees everywhere. And he said it all happened all at once. So just a queen, clean sweep through the panhandle and just massive amounts of bee die offs all at one time. And it, it totally changed my, my family forever. I mean, granddaddy, had to uh, struggle to find a way to convert from queen and package production to honey production. And it led him to go to Gainesville to be the chief apiary inspector, which if, if you know, it wasn't for the tracheal mite, I wouldn't be here right now because whenever they moved to Gainesville, my dad met my mom. So shout out to tracheal mites for your boy, you know? So, um, <laughs> but 
commercial beekeepers, I mean, some of them couldn't adapt and it's happening today with Varroa mites. It's just, it came too hard on them too fast and they, they couldn't adapt with the, uh, with the pests. And that's why places like you guys, the UFB lab are just so important to help not only educate and extension, but to help those people in a practical sense, the commercial guys help face the new challenge, you know? And, uh, heck, I mean, some of the stuff that they were using for tracheal mites were actually transferred to varroa mites because of research. And, uh, you know, that's the biggest thing right now is varroa mites for sure, hands down. But um, ignorance is a big one too um, because, you know, you get your occasional call of like someone treating a, a swarm of bees with pesticides and not calling it a beekeeper or a bee stung me it wasn't a bee, it was a wasp. So there's a lot of these bag stigmas around, but really the biggest ignorance problem for bees is people not understanding the complexity and the fragileness of them. They go into beekeeping with the wife's tales and not the, the facts with research attached to it. And they don't treat their hives for mites, not knowing the, the huge problem they are. And then they cause a mite bomb. So it doesn't only just kill their hive, but it, it kills everybody else's hives and potentially it, it makes someone lose their livelihood and that's why ignorance is in my opinion like the biggest thing right now from tracheal mites small hive beetles robo mites and it, you know there's so much that bees and beekeepers have to face throughout the years of the industry and um that's why again places like uf are just so important is not just the research against the pest but the extension of breaking those bad stigmas and the the faults tales that are out there and you know granddaddy fought so hard to build the best bee research facility for the best bee researchers like dr ellison and you know we're we're just so happy to uh, to be a part of that and to help support that logan i think those are all great comments uh i've never heard anybody give a shout out to tracheal mites before but <laughs> honestly if tracheal mites are what brought your parents together then sometimes those things may be necessary and that does bring up, you know, this old philosophical discussion about how little minor things cascading, you know, over time can certainly change the trajectory of an individual or a family. And I think that that's, that's the beauty of stories like your family's stories about beekeeping, right? I mean, it's, it's stories just like that. I mean, Mr. Cutts, your grandfather came, of course, to Gainesville, helped lead the, inspe lead the inspection program. Of course, build the bee lab that I'm I'm in now. In fact, the the office that I have is named after your grandfather in honor of your grandfather. So, it's it's neat to see how beekeeping families like yours shape um, what happens. It's it's interesting always to talk to beekeepers, especially you know long dynasties like the Cuts Dynasty, because just like what you said, they go through so many things: tracheal mites, varroa, small hive beetles. You know, people who've seen a lot of different things and. It just it just really gives you an appreciation for for the human aspect of beekeeping. So as we kind of wind down, Logan, I want to ask you, you know, how do you uh, want to contribute to the beekeeping community? How do you like contributing to the beekeeping community? Kind of what's your goal with regard to helping beekeepers in the future? Your personal goal. Uh, well, my personal goal is to to reach as many people, whether it be the public or beekeepers in general, as many people as I can. Because I just I love sharing my knowledge of bees to people, seeing their eyes light up whenever I tell them like bees have five eyes and four wings, and you know bees talk to each other. 
babies use their tongues to to feed each other and like people like just small things to me they're like that's just basic bee knowledge or like something brand new to somebody and to see them light up and be like wow i never knew bees use smells like pheromones to to communicate and it's like yeah you know they do it every day and i didn't know bees actually did the waggle dance so to to share that knowledge is something that i really enjoy and i feel like that I'm really good at it because, you know, that's why I went into this private consulting stuff, um, you know, not only with small scale beekeeping and sideliners, but like local towns and farmers, school FFAs trying to get an apiary started up, you know, to to help people and to to do my part in breaking the ignorance and bag stigmas is something that I enjoy a lot because it like gets the people that thought I'd never keep bees into man. This is so fascinating. I'm like, yeah, you're right. I mean, my whole life has been bees. I know how great it is. I want to share it with you. And, you know, I helped with the Alachua County extension class, like, uh, Amy said, so shout out to the coolest beekeepers in the 352 Gainesville area code. <laughs> um, you know, we have a lot of fun over there and, you know, that's where I get a huge crowd. You know, normally it's just one-on-one, but to see a lot of people like sign up and like within two weeks, you know, we've already sold all the tickets, all the seats away. It's just awesome to me. And, you know, that's the only answer is teaching people because, you know, you you guys do so much research there, but you you guys also do so much extension there. And that's the only way that we can help bees is through better days, through better ways. Like the FFA motto says, you know, people don't know unless you teach them. So I just really want to say that, you know, you guys have been so fruitful already in the incredible work that you guys are doing. And I know that my granddaddy is so happy about it. And through, that like my family myself are just so happy that um how successful the b lab has been well thanks logan i think that's a fantastic story i mean again uh, people listening around the world might wonder why we're talking about this but what i'm what i'd like to convey is that these very types of stories are at your fingertips right now just go find an older beekeeper and just sit and and, and take them to lunch and listen to them talk about their experiences, what they've encountered, et cetera. You know, I'm getting old enough in my own life now that a lot of the beekeepers who I knew as, as, as a young fella, and they were older, they're passing away now. Perhaps one of the most notable examples of that is, is Carl Webb, a very notable Georgia beekeeper who passed away over about a month or so ago. And what a tremendous experience it is to meet with older beekeepers and just listen to their stories about beekeeping. It'll really make you appreciate that, that, that the bees aren't the only part of what we do here. We hang out with really great people around the world who have fantastic stories, legacies, impact on our industry. Logan, you and your family exemplify that through, through your grandfather, who I've known, his kids, and now you guys, the grandkid generation. So what a great contribution you guys have made to beekeeping here in Florida, but around the U.S. So, Logan, I really appreciate you joining us here on Two Bees in a Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And again, Jamie, I just want to thank you for the opportunity you gave me as a, a young kid to to go work at UF and to learn so much under you guys and the visiting scholars that came. I mean, it really helped me establish myself and, and help myself um, just learn more and and be better. So uh, thank you for that.
our pleasure. And the cool thing about it is there's B labs around the country and the world giving opportunities just like, just like we were able to do for you. And I, I know that the, the future is bright in the beekeeping world. So everybody that was Logan Cutts, he's an ag and consumer protection inspector for the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, and more importantly, a fifth generation beekeeper who has lots of stories to share uh, about his time here. So thank you for joining us for this segment on Two Bees in a Podcast. Have questions or comments? Don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at UF Honeybee Lab. For this segment, we wanted, Jamie and I wanted to talk about the commercial beekeeping industry and some of the commodities that they work with and essentially just the whole industry. Um, a lot of people, when they think about commercial beekeeping, you know, they automatically think large operations, which is true. But sometimes I don't think people realize, you know, what goes into those large operations, Jamie. I think a lot of the time, you know, even some of the commercial beekeepers, some of them may not even keep bees anymore. They're just working their businesses. And so we in this episode wanted to talk about some of the different things that commercial beekeepers do, what makes up the industry. And so we'll, we'll touch a little bit about that. Um, so Jamie, tell me what you think I guess not what you think, but what you know to be the biggest beekeeping, commercial beekeeper operations. What do people do? Yeah. So, Amy, that's, that's a series of interesting comments. And then we've got some good questions to, to address. And so, we'll, well, I'll start off with asking, you know, what is a commercial beekeeper? Because almost certainly when people think commercial beekeeping, they associate it with a size of the operation. For example, here in Florida, I forget what it is. It's somewhere 500 or so colonies i forget amy you can correct me 250 i forget but it's 101 you know, no is it well there you go 101 <laughs> make it official so what's a sideliner then if that's the it's case it's 41 to, to 100 interesting but but nevertheless the way that i define commercial beekeeping is that it's when you are engaged in beekeeping activities that's the principal source of income for you or your family so when we say sideline beekeeping sideline beekeepers are those individuals usually who have another job and the beekeeping aspect supplements that income. So really commercial beekeepers are those individuals who that's what they do for a living. And of course, when the general public thinks of beekeeping and commercial beekeepers, I'm sure their mind, as you've already said, instantly gravitates towards honey production because we call them honey bees after all, right? And when I was a kid and started keeping bees, I thought the same thing. And of course, a lot of commercial beekeepers do in fact engage in honey production. They're constantly moving their bees all over the place to produce honey, to chase honey flows. But I'll tell you that honey production is really just one of many components of things that beekeepers do. I will, I will kind of preface the rest of our discussion with, you know, I started off with this idea that commercial beekeeping means that, that, that people are deriving most of their income from it. In the States, you know, in, in Florida, the average commercial beekeeper has over a thousand colonies. And we've got beekeepers in the U.S. who have 60, 70, or 80,000 colonies. But in most places around the world, you can be a commercial beekeeper with just hundreds of colonies, uh, especially in Europe and other places where I travel. You know, people consider themselves commercial if they have two, three, four, or 500 colonies. But in the States, you know, you know commercial beekeepers have, have many, many more colonies typically. I think we're some of the largest uh, beekeeping operations in the world. So with that background, a lot of beekeepers around the world keep bees to make honey. However, as I've noted already, there's a lot of spinoff things that you can do with commercial beekeeping. 
What are those spinoff things? Yeah, I mean, Amy, the very first thing I think that we would think about here in the U.S. is we would think about pollination, right? So sure. there's an entire agriculture industry in the U.S. that uh, is responsible for growing what the USDA or the United States Department of Ag calls specialty crops. And those mm-hmm. would be things like blueberries, watermelons, cantaloupes, squashes, almonds, just just things that aren't necessarily the staples of our diet, but that are very important nevertheless. And a lot of those things, in fact, everything I just named needs to be pollinated in order to have adequate fruit set, fruit quality, and all of this stuff. So these commercial beekeepers will move their bees all around the country to, to put their bees on these crops while these crops are in bloom so their bees can provide pollination services for these crops. And in return, the grower pays the beekeeper a fee. Yeah, it's, it's almost like rent. So Amy, if you have 10 colonies and I have a lot of blueberries, I might pay you per colony for you to put your colonies out on my blueberry orchard mm-hmm. while it's in, in bloom. And, you know, blueberries, for example, in Florida, the blueberry growers will pay around $70 a colony for your colonies to be out there while they're in bloom. And almonds in California, as an example, might pay upwards of $200 a colony for those colonies to be on almonds while they're in bloom. Sure. And so that's, that's kind of the scale. You know, you might get down as few as $50 a colony for pollination services or as much as 200 225 depending on the growing rate and in the u.s pollination is an incredibly important part of the commercial beekeepers business in fact i would argue that it's probably eclipsed honey production that most bee colonies in the united states are kept by commercial beekeepers who move them around to pollinate crop and what's interesting and a neat statistic in the u.s at least is you know, the, the average commercial beekeeper who's using his or her bees to pollinate crops probably moves their bees to four to five different crops a year to provide mm-hmm. pollination services. So just to make the math super easy, if you're moving to five crops and you're getting $250 because you're getting $50 a crop, you know, that's, that's what the beekeeper can expect. Now say they're making $70 on some crops, $100 on some crops, and as many as, or as much as 200 on almonds. So, you know, the average colony might be bringing beekeepers $400, $500, $600 through pollination services where it would be very difficult to reproduce that amount of money just via honey production. So in the U.S. at least, a lot of bees are moved for pollination purposes. And around the world, um, that's true in a lot of places, but not all places. You know, this is an overgeneralization, but I would say that in the U.S., we, we have a huge emphasis on pollination, whereas in many other countries around the world, the emphasis is on honey production. So it's really interesting to see the differences in commercial beekeeping, depending on where you are on the planet. Sure. And also some of the commercial beekeepers have contracts with brokers, right? I mean, there are brokers out there that help you know, with the landowners and the farmers and with the beekeepers. Yeah. I mean, is it's that very, common or? Yeah, it is. Pollination is a very complicated business. And, you know, the United States, and again, again, I know we have an international audience, so I, hopefully our international listeners can glean something from this, but the U.S. is a big country, right? And, you know, Florida is thousands of miles from California, yet, you know, a lot of commercial beekeepers here in the state of Florida will ship their bees out to California every January to pollinate the almonds that are in bloom in late January, February. And, 
you know, they, they often go to these places sight unseen. So there might be brokers who are negotiating, you know, between the, the almond growers and the beekeepers about the colony prices and where to move colonies. In fact, almonds need pollination by honeybees so bad that a lot of the growers will even pay the shipping cost for commercial mm-hmm. beekeepers to get their bees out to California. And, we, and we've got this duplicated on a small scale around the U.S. for other crops and really around the world for their respective crops, too. So it's, it's a really interesting um, paradigm. And honestly, I, I see the pollination need growing and growing and growing as our world population gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So I certainly think this is something that commercial beekeepers the world over will be doing in the next you know, few decades, transitioning heavily to pollination services. Sure. So we had put out a survey just to the Florida commercial beekeepers last October. And I remember, you know, pollination does, you know, make a lot of the beekeepers will make a lot of their money through pollination, but they also make money through other sources and other, you know, selling other things as well. So let's go ahead and transition over to that. So what I mean, I guess there was just a list of things that beekeepers do. So um, what about selling bees or equipment? Or can you talk a little bit about that process? Do you think that the people who are doing pollination, the commercial beekeepers doing pollination, are they also selling bees and doing other things? Or is it, do you think it's primarily just doing pollination and there are other commercial beekeepers doing other things? Amy, you're you're bringing up a very important point. I I think I can say this with clarity of conscience. I don't think I know a single beekeeper who only does one thing. Yeah. Almost all of them, especially the commercial beekeepers, uh, invest in diversity in their operation. Even the ones who are almost 100% diehard pollinators, they're going to produce honey on the side and might sell colonies sure. here and there. So you're right. There's, there's, you know, most commercial beekeepers, even around the world for that matter, are heavily diversified in their operations. So they're not just producing honey mm-hmm. or pollinated crops. You mentioned specifically selling bees. There, there is a segment of beekeeper, beekeepers in the U.S. and around the world who invest heavily in just the production of bees. They might be queen producers. They might be packaged bee producers. They might be nuke producers. They might produce whole, you know, whole colonies. And these individuals, and, and I'll just be frank with you, you know, these individuals are the ones who I see at the moment making the greatest amount of money because there's such a high demand for bees that those sure. individuals who specialize in the production and sell of bees in whatever capacity, queens, package bees, nukes, et cetera, they're, they're really making a lot of money because, you know, of the loss rates of colonies and the high demand for bees for pollination and honey production purposes. So almost, almost everyone dabbles in it. You know, you might send colonies out to California for pollination and you don't want to bring, um, you know, a hundred of them back. So you might sell them while you're out there. So that, that kind of thing happens all the time. And so the, the bee production and sell business is huge. Um, yeah, so let me let me ask you this as far as selling bees. Are there wholesalers when it comes to selling bees? Is that a silly question? I mean, do people, are there brokers between that as well? Are there people who are just buying, you know, tons of bees from commercial beekeepers and then selling it to the general public? Does that happen? So it does a little bit. So let me kind of explain what happens. There, again, there's kind of different components of this industry. So there there is a component that focuses principally on queen production. And usually if you are selling queens, you're usually selling packaged bees as well. So those individuals often sell direct to consumer. So from hobbyist to commercial beekeeper will contact these queen and package bee producers and place their orders. But I do know a lot of individuals who will actually purchase a lot of packages from a package producer, say at a wholesale price, and then they'll take them back to their house and sell, 
you know, for $5 more per package to recover the transportation cost. So, so I wouldn't necessarily call them brokers. I'm just, I would call those individuals who are buying in volume to kind of get the volume discount. But the vast majority of individuals go straight to the queen or package B producers. Nukes are the same way. For the most part, commercial beekeepers who are needing to purchase nukes will go straight to the nuke producers or straight to the producers of whole colonies. I mean, here in the Florida, in Florida, we have some of the largest nuke and whole colony producers in, in the whole of the United States. And that's principally their whole business is to produce and sell nukes or colonies. And, and uh, usually the beekeepers know who those individuals are and will go to the direct to the producer. So I don't see broker brokering happening as much. Usually if it's brokering for package bees, it might be a bee club. For example, sure. you know, maybe it's hard for you or me as a hobbyist to buy a package in March, but maybe it'd be easier for our club president to buy 500 packages and bring them back to our local bee club. And then we buy the packages from him or her. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's usually what I see happening kind of in that regard. But, you know, there's a lot of money to be made right now in the production and sell of bees. And I, I see it and it's, it's interesting to me because I think people are, are kind of waking up to that and, and getting into that business as well. That's pretty cool. Okay, so we talked about selling bees. A- another thing that people said that they did from the survey that we had put out was um, selling equipment. So I know that there are a handful of big named equipment manufacturers out there. I don't know if I see a lot of smaller uh, equipment manufacturers. So can you tell me a little bit, I guess, about that industry? Yeah, it's funny you ask about that, right? We, we, if we don't have a place to put bees, we're kind of stuck, right? So we, we get these packages, we get these nukes, we get these colonies, where are we going to put them? So of course, there's a segment of our industry that provides the equipment needed for our industry. They produce and sell the, the hive boxes or the frames. They produce and sell the beekeeping personal protective equipment, you know, the veils, the suits and all of that stuff. They sell the honey processing, extracting, handling, bottling equipment. They sell books, they sell specialty product equipment. And you mentioned there, there are some very big players in the U.S. I mean, we think traditionally about Daydant and Man Lake mm-hmm. and some of the other big equipment producers in the U.S. But there are a lot of people who are starting to provide this service for hobbyists. I, you know, I'll give my father-in-law as an example. He He's always had the skill set of building, you know, he built his own house. He, 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 he just likes to work with his hands. Sure. And now that he's retired, he makes and sells beekeeping equipment and serves a lot of, you know, hobbyists and sideliners where he lives. And I'm seeing a lot of these kind of operations popping up around the U.S. And frankly, the demand for bees and beekeeping is, is at an all-time high. You know, everybody mm-hmm. seems to be wanting to get into hobbyist beekeeping. So there's room at the moment to support this. And of course, there's the big equipment producers. A lot of our commercial beekeepers tend to go to those individuals so they can get the wholesale prices and get it in bulk. And I tell you, when, when I speak to people who sell, produce and sell beekeeping equipment, they're always taxed to, you know, to their end because they are, sure. they're working overtime because of the demand that people have for, for beekeeping equipment at the moment. All right. So some people buy that equipment and what they do is they do bee removal. They do live removals. I don't know if we have a lot of beekeepers that do eradications. They might, but that also is in an industry in and of itself, isn't it? I mean, we have so many people that call about bee removals. It is. And it's funny, Amy, because when I was up, you know, I'm from Georgia. When I was up in Georgia, I didn't really think much about this all the time. Where, where I'm from, I did not see a lot of feral colonies. And if, and if there were feral colonies, I was the one as a kid who got sure. called to remove them. Mm-hmm. So, but, but I never saw it as a huge business. And since I've been working in Florida, you know, for the University of Florida, we have African bees in the southern half of the state. We've got 
got so many beekeepers, so many bee colonies, just the feral population, especially in the southern half of the state, the feral population in Florida is just ridiculous. And as a result, we've, we've had, you know, in the last decade or so, quite an explosion in the number of beekeepers who provide bee removal services and they'll come to houses and take bees out of walls or out of chimneys or out of water meter boxes or out of trees, et cetera. And so, um, there's been a, a focused and steady growth in demand for bee removal services in the state of Florida. And I've seen that really around the U.S. You know, now that I'm a, quote, professional and work for a university, I, I'm consulted a lot on these services. And, and states all over the U.S., uh, countries all around the world, beekeepers are really getting into providing these bee removal services. And they're, and they're doing it under a couple of premises. Number one, you know, bee losses are, are a reality and people are struggling with them. So rather than, you know, treat these colonies that are considered nuisance colonies because they're nesting too close to people rather than treat them and kill them, bring in a beekeeper who can, you know, remove them safely. And, and, and I use the term rehabilitate the colony, which simply means mm-hmm. putting them into a, a, you know, one of our standard uh, managed boxes and bring them under management. And so this is becoming incredibly popular. There's a lot of beekeepers in our state who provide this service. And, and I think it's a really neat way to supplement one's income. Heck, a lot of people do it for their full-time business and have so much business because of the population of feral bees in some parts of the country that they're just you know, working from sun up to sun down. So <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it is a it is a underlooked or uh, overlooked uh, p- you know portion of our commercial beekeeping industry because it's not beekeeping in the traditional sense. It's 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 very different, but it's rewarding for those individuals who do it, and they're providing a very important service for those people who have bees nesting on their property. So I think it's really interesting that you say that when you were in Georgia, you were going and doing the bee removals yourself because I have a friend who lives in Missouri who also is a beekeeper and they don't call anybody when it comes to bee removal. You know, they basically just go out and, and remove bees on their own and then they keep them for themselves. So I, I think it's really interesting because I don't think I had thought about calling someone out to remove bees until I came down here to Florida. And of course, with the Africanized or African derived honeybees, um, of course, there are other states like Texas, Arizona, right? And they, they also have African derived bees. So I think it's really interesting just as far as where you are in the United States. I think nope. that's key. I think that's yeah. key, Amy. Really, really, the issue, and this is just my guess here, but the key issue is is everywhere African bees are present. Present, uh, you have these very robust bee removal businesses. I, I, you know, you know that I've got my PhD from an institution in South Africa, so I I was able to live in South Africa for three years. And when I was there, the population of feral hun- or in Africa's case, wild honeybees, because they're native there, just was high. The density was incredible, mm-hmm. and I've only seen a density like that one other place and that was south florida where african bees are present so my point is is where you've got these bees you can have a very high feral population which you know whether you love them or hate them these bees can be a risk to humans or animals etc so you tend to see robust bee removal businesses in areas where these bees are present because homeowners are routinely calling beekeepers and for that matter pest control operators to have these bees removed Yeah. So we've talked about pollination. We've talked about selling bees, selling equipment, bee removal. What am I missing? Am I missing something? 
Yeah, so there's about three things that I want to mention still. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, then tell me those three things. I'll tell you those three things so that you'll know to ask me about them, Amy. So the first of those that I'll go into is kind of some other high products, and then we can talk, you know, as, as a spinoff segment of that, some specialty products. And then, of course, I'll talk about the pr production of mead. So let me start a little bit with high products. So, you know, honeybees don't only produce honey. They also secrete wax. They produce royal jelly. They have venom. They collect tree rosins and saps, et cetera, for use as propolis. And there is a sub uh, component or subsegment of our commercial beekeeping industry where these beekeepers actually harvest these things. They, they keep bees for the production and rendering and sell of beeswax or for the production of royal jelly or bee venom to be used for apotherapy purposes or propolis. Now, admittedly, royal jelly, venom, and, and propolis, or if, if they are being collected, if they're being produced and collected, harvested, refined, et cetera, it's almost always for the perceived medicinal benefit. So sure. outside of the U.S., especially in Asian cultures, these things are very you know, routinely used as part of just kind of holistic health management. Again, mm -hmm. that's royal jelly, venom, and propolis. And in the U.S., since there's, there's not nearly as much focus on that kind of medicine, we don't have industries quite as big for the production of those things but around the world you know when i when i travel and am hosted by other beekeepers around the world it's very common for them to also produce royal jelly or venom or propolis etc so these things can be very important for commercial beekeepers because there's a lot of specialty markets a lot of customers who want these things and that kind of leads me naturally very naturally into the next point that i'll make is a lot of people keep bees for the production of these hive products, you know, wax, royal jelly, venom, propolis. Heck, you can even harvest pollen. People will harvest mm -hmm. and sell pollen. Mm -hmm. And what they'll do is they'll make stuff with these things and sell this stuff, these specialty products. So with wax, they'll make candles or other wax features or they'll make cosmetics or lip balm with propolis. They'll do similar stuff. So there's a lot of people who will harvest these hive products and then as a result, make specialty products from those things to sell direct to consumer. You know, many beekeepers, you know, everybody who produces honey is going to produce wax as a byproduct. Sure. You've got to uncap frames. There's a lot of just wax produced in that process. So a lot of beekeepers will just melt down and render their wax and sell it as, you know, as bulk to other individuals. But there are some beekeepers who will take it a step further and they will produce those specialty products that they sell direct to consumers. Hmm. Okay. And you mentioned mead. Is that considered a specialty product? Or yeah, it's, it kind it's of fits weird. under that or no? Yeah, it's kind of a weird thing. And I know I'm going to get it wrong if I answer your question. <laughs> I consider it kind of a, a specialty product because okay. it's, it's not directly produced by the bees themselves. So, so what is mead? Mead is a fermented honey beverage. So there are some historians who think honey was actually the first sugared substance that was fermented for the purpose of having an alcoholic beverage. And most people have never heard of mead until our, if, if, until you've heard of the story Beowulf, which everybody has to read at some point in their you know, scholastic development. In Beowulf, they all hang out in the mead halls at nighttime. And a mead hall is just this gigantic gathering. is It's a big bar where the principal beverage was some sure. sort of product derived from honey. And these days, individuals keep bees to produce specialty honeys, you know, honeys that might be 
underrepresented on the market, sourwood, tupelo, et cetera. And with these specialty honeys, they'll make mead. They will ferment them in a controlled manner. They'll add certain flavors, citrus, et cetera, and they'll make meads, dry meads, sweet meads, et cetera. And so mead production is really starting to, to grow. And, and a lot of it, Amy, I, I attribute to these kind of local microbreweries that are popping up all over the place. I was about to say, yeah, yeah, they're craft beers. And so exactly. people are turning meaderies into exactly. a thing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. A lot of these craft beer, beer microbrewery uh, individuals who invest in these things will, will try to carry a honey product from a local beekeeper and make some sort of fermented honey beer, or honey beverage, or honey mead. So, you know, one of the things that I think, and and I think personally that that the production of mead is really interesting. And there, to me, it's very artistic. You know, there's flavors, there's colors, and mm-hmm. all, a lot of it's under your control. Some of it, you're at the mercy of the honey that you use. But but I feel like this could be a growing business in the future if people, um, you know, continue to invest in it and market it well. And And at the end of the day, when we talk about a lot of these products, you know, honey production and pollination, that's the raw brunt force labor. Queen sure. package bee produce, production, raw brunt, you know, mm-hmm. br- brute force, you know, they're out there working hard, labor, labor, labor. But when we talk about, you know, high products and specialty products and mead, all of this stuff's kind of what I call the delicacy of, of beekeeping where mm-hmm. you can get really artistic. And, and honestly, Amy, that's where people are making money. You know, a lot of the commercial beekeepers who are producing honey, they'll sell their honey in bulk for $2 a pound. Whereas if you just put that honey in a, in a jar, you can get $10 or $15 a pound. <laughs> yeah. I, I know a beekeeper who put, you know, honey in wine bottles, you know, a pound of honey in wine bottles, and I might've gotten $5 for a pound of honey. And now he's getting $20 just because it's in a wine bottle. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's when it you're looks making, prettier. Exactly. Yeah. When you're making these specialty products, there's a lot of opportunity for value adding, right? So, sure. so commercial beekeeping is very diverse. It's very rich. Commercial beekeepers are just a interesting group of people because you've got these people with lots of colonies that are just working sun up to sundown, moving bees, extracting honey. And then you've got these other individuals who's doing the kind of artistic side where they're mm-hmm. making these products. It's just really interesting to see the spectrum. And I see this around the world. It's really an exciting time to be a commercial beekeeper. Yeah, I think that's great. I, it's so funny. I, I'm sure a commercial beekeeper too will hear our podcast and let us know the things that we've missed on this because there's so much that they do. You know, I mean, I know that some of them even educate. So that's also one of the things that commercial bee- beekeepers do and they're very involved with their local associations. So I think it's so much fun to hear about the commercial beekeeping industry and you know, quite frankly, I didn't really know about a lot of this stuff until I actually took my position here. So I wanted to share that with everybody um, who's listening to us who may just have started being a beekeeper or have, you know, considered going to become a sideliner or a commercial beekeeper. So these are just a few of the opportunities that you can look into. Um, But that was great. Thanks, Jamie. My pleasure. And, you know, a a shout out to all the commercial beekeepers out there. These men and women are hard workers and they really ensure the world's food production and they do it you know at 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 a lot of manual labor hard work Mm -hmm. a lot of stress and it's just great that we have commercial beekeepers out there i i always tell people if you like to eat you need to go hug and thank a commercial beekeeper (laughs) well don't hug them right now because we're (laughs) in covid 
It's everybody's favorite game show, Stump the Chump. Jamie, do you feel like because of COVID that you've become more antisocial or do you feel like you were antisocial? Well, here's the deal, Amy. I'm I'm actually pretty antisocial anyway. (laughs) It's, I'm, I, my wife and I are both this way. We we tend to prefer to be at home alone with our family than if we don't have a lot that's of friends. Fair. I know that's a sad statement, but it's true. But um, we so COVID was kind of that. It, it, it was good. It, for you it didn't guys. change us a lot yeah. in that regard. It changed us a lot in other regards, but not not in that particular regard. Yeah. I feel like I haven't seen anybody in about six months or so, and I feel like a hermit in my closet right now. And so I thought, just <laughs> I was just thinking about that. It was just kind of funny. Anyway, well, I'm at the office today, so I'm, I'm not <laughs> well, stuck in my great. closet today. All right. So let's. Uh, I have three questions for you. Um, the first one is about manuka honey. I've actually received some emails about Manuka honey. And so can you just tell me about Manuka honey and what's the deal? Why is it so fancy and, and why do yeah, people want it? Manuka honey is really interesting to me. So there is a, a shrub or a tree, a shrub called Manuka that, that grows principally in New Zealand, but it also grows in Australia as well. The Australians will remind, remind me of that every time I go over to Australia. <laughs> yeah. And the reason I'm saying is Manuka is almost always associated with New Zealand honeybees and New Zealand honey production, but the Australians actually produce really good quality Manuka as well. Anyway, so this Manuka, the, the bush tree shrub kind of thing produces nectar from which bees make honey and the honey's called Manuka honey. So Manuka honey is so famous because of its, you know, scientifically documented um, health benefits. So Manuka honey, which I think does not really taste that good. So I'm sorry for everybody out there who (laughs) likes it. Manuka honey has certain properties associated with it that improve the, the health benefits. For example, if you purchase Manuka honey, there will often be a number, some, some, Groups call it the UMF, the unique, unique Manuka factor. And there'll be a number on that jar. And depending on the size of that number, it will dictate the, the amount of some of those special components that it has. So at the end of the day, for example, one of the key components in Manuka honey that everybody goes so crazy about is methylglyoxal. And I'm not even sure I said that right, but that is a key signature found in, in Manuka honey. And it's one of the things that's very important. There are other key things as well. There's, if, if you look up information about Manuka honey, you'll get all uh, a few other things. Leptosparin mm-hmm. is an example, and then some acronyms, MGO, DHA, et cetera. And a lot of this stuff is claimed to have medicinal properties. So Manuka honey is sold for that purpose around the world as topical uh, wound healers. A lot of people take it uh, consumption. Like I said, it doesn't taste so good to me. So a lot of people will use it in teas and things just for ingestion What does it purposes. taste like? It's just, to me, it's a very dark and kind of strong honey, like what you would expect like from like a fall honey. honey. Yeah, it's kind of like a, just, it's just got its unique, strong taste. <laughs> it's it, A medicinal I, taste. Well, I will tell you, Amy, when I was young in beekeeping, I basically had this statement. If it's light honey, it's table grade. And that means you'd be, able, you'd be willing to put it on a biscuit and eat it raw. But if it's dark and it tastes bad, people just call it medicinal. <laughs> <laughs> so honey that tastes bad automatically gets the medicinal label. label. But in this case, Manuka actually does have benefits. And one of the sure. funny stories I have, is I was in Germany uh, a few years ago. I think, um, I forget, two or three years now. And I was at a grocery store and they had six different, it was the same manufacturer, same labels, 
but six different jars of Manuka honey side by side. And it had that Manuka factor on the jar. And as you stepped up from factor to factor to factor, it cost significantly more to go higher up the jar. So for example, one kilogram of honey, which was, which was the smallest, which was the standard amount that they have mm-hmm. there. I forget what it was. It was five or 10 euros. And that was at its lowest, you know, Manuka factor. And, and as it graded up, I mean, we've finished over a hundred euros per same size jar. It just had more of that particular ingredient in it that people want to see so much, you know, that hmm. methyl glyoxal so that they want to see so much in Manuka. So a lot of people go really, you know, uh, crazy for it because of its, yeah. uh, its, re- its reputed health benefits. What I would say is, as with anything related to health, you know, consult a doctor before you get head over he- heels about it, read a lot about it, but it's certainly not harmful to eat. So you can look into that. And I'll tell you too, the, the New Zealand beekeepers and the Australian beekeepers, but specifically the New Zealand beekeepers, it is a prized honey. It's almost sure. like gold, the value of that stuff to them. And if we're paying, oh, you know, over a hundred euros per kilogram for this, you know, in Europe, as an example, you can imagine what the beekeepers are making per mm-hmm. kilogram. So, mm-hmm. you know, they, they will helicopter colonies in to places that have isolated Manuka patches. That's so it's so crazy. It is a really cool. interesting. I think there's even a Manuka mafia. Like if you if you get too <laughs> close sure to the hives, is. your bees are going to disappear. So it's a really fun story to yeah. read about. It's a really unique and amazing honey. And the last thing I'll say then is that a lot of other uh, places around the world who also have unique honeys have been uh, investigating their honey for some of the same properties that you, sure. Manukas. I remember there was a research pro- project in Florida, for example, that, where they were screening a lot of our local honeys to see if they have some of the same factors that Manuka honey has. So a lot of people are identifying what makes Manuka so beneficial and trying to see if those things exist in their own honeys as well. So it's a really neat story that people should read about. In fact, yeah. I, I would argue we probably need to invite uh, um, uh, beekeeper from New Zealand to come and join us and talk about this and, and discuss, you know, what they see as a whole segment related to Manuka honey. Great. Let's do it. Okay. So we have two more questions. The second question is, should we keep bees in the sun or the shade? Where is the best placement and should the entrances be faced in a certain direction? I get that question pretty often. Yeah. It's the standard question that people will give when they're starting up their apiaries. And and so Mm -hmm. the truth of the matter is, is the data that I've seen on these very questions is kind of all over the place. So the, the short answer is, is you can do what's convenient for you or what's convenient for the bees. A lot of this kind of has had faced a resurgence because there's this general belief that if your colonies are in shade, they have uh, bigger problems with small hive beetles than if they're in full mm-hmm. sun. And, you know, I even did a research project on that as a postdoc and I found a difference, but it, it wasn't all that grand. So what I find is that, you know, if bees, if bees are in full sun, they have to work really hard to cool their colonies. There's a lot of thermoregulation. They sure. have to collect a lot of water, a lot of fanning. And to me, I just don't know that that, that the, the perceived health benefits of having them in full sun are worth the very clear stress of them having to thermoregulate so hard. Mm-hmm. A lot of beekeepers keep them in full sun just out of necessity. A lot of commercial beekeepers will have these holding yards or stocking yards where there's no other choice. There's no trees. And so they'll put hundreds in a field and that's just what it is. But I don't think the data is strong enough at the moment to, to make the average hobby beekeeper, you know, change things significantly. So what I usually say is morning sun and some afternoon shade are really good 
for bees. And, and I will say too, I'll tell you what I was taught, and this is just an old wives tale and it's only anecdotal, but I like it when my colonies face south and that's just a personal preference. And the idea I, is, is it, you know, in the Northern hemisphere, if your colonies face south, they have maximum sun exposure on the entrance. So mm-hmm. it kind of gets the bees up first thing in the morning. And so, so generally speaking, as I was always told, and I always kind of try to do is morning sun, afternoon shade with entrances facing south. But if you don't have those conditions available to you, it's okay. Do what you've got and, and don't sweat over it too much. Yeah, so that, that actually leads to our last question for today um, about observation hives. So can observation hives survive in a home? And again, you know, just like the last question we had, does the placement of where those observation hives matter? I mean, could they scorch? You know, I mean, it, I, I'm just thinking if you're talking about a south-facing window, you know, could the bees scorch in, a, in an area like that? So observation hives are a very unique thing. I don't think I've ever answered a question on observation hives. Maybe I have, but well, you're observation, about to. Yeah, observation <laughs> hives are very difficult to keep alive. So we do it a lot. I've used them a lot from all the way being in high school when I was doing science fair projects through my undergrad postdoc days. Even, even now here at University of Florida, we use observation hives for research purposes. However, usually for research purposes, we set them up, we do our work, and we take them down because anything outside of that, you know, they'll, we call it blowout. So what I would say, it is possible to keep observation hives alive a long time. It may be into perpetuity in a house. You know, I, I know this is possible. Beekeepers all over the place do it. They just need extra attention because, you know, most observation hives, you only accommodate two, three, or four frames, mm-hmm. and your colonies are going to outgrow that three or four times a year. So there's a high propensity for swarm. It's difficult sometimes to provide them food if they need it. It's difficult to manage queens because you got to take it outside and open it up and then sure. take it back inside. It's difficult for disease and pest management, but it's doable. So honestly, as, as long as it's inside, you know, if you put it on a south-facing wall, I don't think that that would be overly bad for them because, you know, the hive itself is climate control in a, in a climate control building on the inside of that wall. So I don't think that's a problem. And usually when people do observation hives, they'll make sure and have, you know, a curtain over the window so the colony's not being, um, getting too much exposure to sunlight directly. Or like I said, it's in a climate control situation where even if it is sunny, it's still cool inside the building. So it's possible. We have a University of Florida fact sheet on observation hives. There's been books on observation hives written. We'll at least link the fact sheet in our show notes for today. But yeah, I love them. They make great show pieces. They're just a little bit of extra work and you're going to have to be willing to put in the time to manage it, but it can be a very rewarding experience for you. That's great. Yeah, we've had some great questions from the audience. So I would encourage you all to continue sending us emails or writing to us on social media. Um, don't forget to rate us on any podcast app. Uh, we look, we love seeing comments, whether they, they are good or bad. You know, I always joke around saying if it's bad, don't let us know. But, but we do like to receive uh, constructive criticism. So we welcome any and all feedback that you all have. So thanks, Jamie. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Two Bees in a Podcast. We would like to give an extra special thank you to our audio engineer, James Weaver, and to our podcast coordinator, Jacqueline Ayenje. Without their hard work, Two Bees in a Podcast would not be possible. For more information and additional resources for today's episode, don't forget to visit the UF IFAS Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory's website, ufhoneybee.com. Do you have questions you won't answer it on air? 
If so, email them to honeybee at ifis.ufl.edu or message us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at UF Honeybee Lab. While there, don't forget to follow us. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. <laughs>